Well, if you would now take your copy of the scriptures and turn in them to the Gospel of John, and we're going to continue our study in John's Gospel, and um, this morning our text will be John 1, 19 through 28, John 1, 19 through 28, and so let me begin by reading this passage of scripture together. You could also follow along on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then are you, Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Amen, that's the reading of God's word. Who is John the Baptist? Many have heard of him, but how many know anything about him? My guess is that few people even perhaps in the church, could put together much of a description of John the Baptist if they were put on the spot to do so. If that's you, then pay attention to this text, because that's what this text is all about. The primary purpose of John 1, 19-28, is to identify John the Baptist, who he was and what he came to do. But of course, you can't do that without also learning about Jesus. Because the identity and the mission of Jesus, of John the Baptist, can only be defined relative to him. John came for Jesus. Without Jesus, he's insignificant. So as we learn about John the Baptist this morning, we will also be learning about Jesus. And finally, when John, of course, had a unique role in history, that is true. We're going to see that. But there's also a sense in which he's one of us. He's a believer in Jesus. And so his life is instructive to us. It provides us with a model. And so we'll learn something this morning about what it means to follow Jesus as we learn about John the Baptist. So before we dive into the text, though, I think it's important at this point to just notice where it fits within the overall flow of the book. We've been in John 1, 1 through 18 to this point, and remember that those first 18 verses of the chapter are like a prologue to the whole book. That section, it provides you with 
um, an introduction to the rest of the book by introducing you to some of the book's major themes. Also remember that unlike the other three Gospels, John's account of the Gospel is unique in that it revolves around the stories of seven miraculous signs which Jesus performed. So, the section that immediately follows the prologue, that is the rest of chapter 1, is actually designed to lead us into the first of those seven signs around which the book revolves. So, what's in this section? This larger section of the rest of chapter 1, that is verses 19 through 51. Well, on the surface, you look at it and you say, well, it just contains really the beginning of Jesus' story. It tells us about John the Baptist, who, as we shall see, is Jesus's forerunner, the one who went before him. And then it tells us how Jesus called some of his inner circle disciples to himself. It's the beginning of Jesus's story. But there's actually a bit more to this section than that. If you pay attention, you can see that there are time markers throughout the description of the events in this section leading up to Jesus' first miracle. And these time markers seem to indicate that what we are reading in chapter 1, verse 19, all the way to chapter 2, is what transpired over the course of seven days leading up to the first of Jesus' seven miracles. So, the events in our text, verses 19 through 28, they occur on day one. The next day, the text says, day two, Jesus, or John, pointed to Jesus and called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The next day, day three, he did it again, except this time two of John's disciples, one of whom was Andrew, responded to that by following Jesus to the place where he was staying, and they spent the night there. The next day, day four, Andrew went and found his brother, Peter, and brought him to Jesus too. The next day, day five, Jesus called Philip and Nathaniel. The next day, day six, it seems that Jesus made a journey to Galilee, and then finally, on the third day after calling Nathaniel and Philip, which was day seven, Jesus attended a wedding in Galilee, in Cana, where he performed, as John put it in chapter 2, verse 11, the first of his signs. In other words, there is an elegance to this first section of the prologue. It provides this slow-moving tour through the seven days leading up to the first miracle that Jesus performed, the miracle that would launch his public ministry, a ministry that would culminate in his death by crucifixion three years later. Now, what we see in our text is that it all started with John the Baptist. Now, the author had already introduced us to John the Baptist as a witness to Jesus back in the prologue in verses 6 through 8. Now, 
he provides a more detailed account of John's testimony. John is a witness to Jesus, so what did he say? And that's what these verses are all about. The focus of our text, which is verses 19 through 28, the first part about John the Baptist, is upon what John testified about himself. So let's begin by walking through this text together to see what it tells us about John the Baptist. And then we'll close by reflecting upon how that applies to our lives today. So first, what John 1, 19-28, what it tells us about John the Baptist. What was his testimony about himself? So the text opens with these words, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, there's no doubt that the John we're talking about here in this verse is referring to John the Baptist. For instance, down in verse 26, he's described as baptizing people with water. But the author doesn't give much background information about John the Baptist. He seems to expect his readers to already be familiar with those details, perhaps because they've read some of the other gospel material that's out there. But let's take a moment just to review these details for those in this room this morning who might not be familiar with them. So if we were to go to Luke's account of the gospel, it tells us there that John the Baptist was born of a woman named Elizabeth, who was the wife of a priest named Zechariah. And Elizabeth was a relative of the Virgin Mary. And like Jesus' birth to Mary, John's birth to Elizabeth was announced ahead of time by the angel Gabriel. And it was accomplished through uh, the supernatural activity of God. Now, Elizabeth was not a virgin like Mary, but the Lord gave her conception through her husband in her old age after many years of being barren. And when John was finally born to Elizabeth, his father prophesied over him that he would have a special role to fulfill from God, a role which would pertain to Mary's child, Jesus, who would be born just a little bit after him. Now, Matthew's gospel gives us a good summary, I think, of John's ministry when he grew up and he began to minister We're told in Matthew 3.16, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then it goes on to say, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Imagine kids eating grasshoppers. Then it says, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So John lived in the wilderness of Judea, near Jerusalem, by the Jordan River. He called people to repent of their sins and Preparation for the arrival of the kingdom which was at hand, that is the kingdom of the Messiah foretold by the prophets. And when people responded to his message, by confessing their sins, he would baptize them, immerse them in water, 
as an outward sign that they had been forgiven by God. And this is where the title John the Baptist comes from. Now notice in particular, though, that Matthew says, quote, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. In other words, John's ministry was making quite a stir, and it was having a significant impact upon the nation of Israel. And so it's not surprising, therefore, when the author in our text tells us, John 1.19, quote, the Jews from Jerusalem, almost certainly a reference to the Jewish leaders there, sent this delegation to find out more about him. Leon Morris puts it this way, he says, it is accordingly not only natural, but to be expected that the authorities would make diligent inquiry about the new religious movement. They could not ignore a man with such a following. Jews in high places were very sensitive to movements that might culminate in disorders and lead to trouble with the Romans. It's interesting to note that this delegation from Jerusalem, did you see, was made up, quote, of priests and Levites. Now, the Sanhedrin, that is the Jewish ruling council that met there in Jerusalem, that council was populated by 70 elders plus one. These elders included men from the parties of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as well as some others. The party of the Sadducees consisted primarily of members of the priesthood. Uh, They included the chief priest, who was the plus one to the 70, or the the high priest, and then also other chief priests. And they sort of functioned like the aristocracy in Israel at that time. They were usually wealthy, they were powerful men, they held positions of authority in the nation, they held the majority of seats in the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, and the high priest himself Um, presided over the council as its head. So the fact that this delegation sent to John consisted mostly of priests and Levites probably indicated that they were sent on behalf of the Sanhedrin, of the, the Jewish ruling council, which was predominated by the powerful priestly party of the Sadducees. Although it is interesting to note that John himself was from a priestly family, his father being Zechariah, he was a priest. So perhaps that too played a role in why they sent priests and Levites out to meet him. But at this point, the delegation's mission was simply exploratory, it seems. So John says in verse 19 that they were sent to, quote, ask him, who are you? In other words, At this point, at least, they were just sent out to find out who this eccentric man out in the wilderness was who claimed, uh, who did he claim to be? He's causing this stir among the populace. We need to find out who he was. The rest of our text, then, is about answering that question. Not just for the Jewish readers of in John's day, but now for us, as, as we are listening in to this story unfold. Who is John the Baptist? The first thing that the text tells us, verses 20 through 21, is who John the Baptist was not. 
And this happens largely by way of John responding to a series of questions posed to him by this delegation of priests and Levites from Jerusalem. See, there were certain figures whom the Jewish community at that time had come to expect their arrival in the last days based upon various Old Testament scriptures. And the delegation from Jerusalem began by asking John if he identified with any of these widely expected figures. The first and most obvious one was the figure of Mashiach in Hebrew, or Messiah as it's transliterated into English. The Hebrew word translated Messiah, it means anointed one. It referred to the king, God's anointed, whom God had promised would arise from David's line in the last days to save Israel from her enemies and to establish his kingdom of righteousness and peace over all the earth forever. The word often used to translate Messiah into Greek was Christos or Christ in your English Bibles. So you see, Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's a title, right? So saying Jesus Christ indicates a belief that Jesus was the promised Messiah, God's ultimate anointed one, the king who would save God's people and rule over the nations forever. In the days of John the Baptist, while Israel is languishing under the boot of the Romans, there was a lot of messianic fervor. Many Jews were hoping that the long-awaited Christ would come and deliver them from Roman tyranny. And indeed, many false Christs had already arrived and made a trouble, stirred up the people to think that they were the Savior and gained a following and then been crushed by the Roman government. So it's reasonable to think that many people in Israel were wondering whether John the Baptist was the Christ and for the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem to wonder whether John was yet another pretender who made a claim to that title. But in verse 20, the author tells us that John emphatically denied that he was the Christ. It says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, upon hearing that, we're told in verse 21 that they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Now, the background to that question is found actually in the last words of the last prophet in Israel. In fact, they're the final verses in the Old Testament in your English Bible. You turn to the book of Malachi and you look at the last two verses. It says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So there you see that the Lord predicted that in the period leading up to the great day of the Lord, the day of his coming, the time of eschatological fulfillment spoken of throughout the prophets, before that time, the Lord would send 
Elijah the prophet. And what would he do? He would bring his people to turn, to repent, so that they would not perish when he came in judgment. Now, this same figure mentioned in those verses is also mentioned a second time in the book of Malachi, back in chapter 3, verse 1, where the Lord said again through the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now there, the figure that was described in chapter 4, verse 5, as Elijah the prophet, is said to be the Lord's messenger, who would prepare the way before him when he came in judgment and salvation. So, how did John reply when he's asked if he was Elijah, the figure whom the Lord said he would send in Malachi 3 and 4? Well, we see his reply in verse 21. He said, I am not. Now, that's very interesting because elsewhere in the New Testament, we're told that John the Baptist was this Elijah figure whose coming was foretold in Malachi 3 and 4. Indeed, the other three Gospels tell us that Jesus himself said John the Baptist was Elijah. So, for instance, in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 11.10, Jesus said to the crowds about John the Baptist, quote, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Well, that's a citation of Malachi 3.1. And then later, in Matthew 17, 10 through 13, we read, And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. Now, of course, that's a reference to Malachi 4, 5, and 6. But I tell you, he says, Elijah has already come. And they did, to him, did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. John the Baptist had been killed. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So Jesus affirmed that John the Baptist was the Elijah figure whom the Lord promised would to send in the last days. In fact, have you ever wondered... Why the gospel records make a point to describe for us what John the Baptist was wearing? They say he wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And the kids giggle. Well, actually, that is a subtle way of identifying John with Elijah the prophet. Because in 2 Kings 1.8, it says of Elijah that he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. But that raises the question. If the New Testament affirmed that John was the Elijah figure who was predicted to come in Malachi 3.1 and Malachi 4.5 and 6, then why did John say, I am not, when this delegation from the Sanhedrin asked, are you Elijah? It's a difficult question. There are, I think, two answers that seem most likely. One is that John simply didn't realize at this point that he was the Elijah figure 
prophesied in Malachi and that Jesus knew more about him than he knew about himself. Or it could be that he knew that he wasn't the Elijah figure the Jews were thinking of. Leon Morris explains this option this way. He says, The Jews remembered that Elijah had left the earth in a chariot of fire without passing through death. Kids, you remember that story? And they expected that in due course, that identical figure would reappear. And John was not Elijah in that sense. And so he had no option, Leon Morris says, but to deny that he was. In other words, according to this interpretation, John was denying that he was the identical person of the ancient prophet Elijah, you know, come back to the earth. That wasn't actually what Malachi 4, 5, and 6 was predicting anyway. In fact, the angel Gabriel clarified to Zechariah. He had said back in Luke 1, 17, that John the Baptist, Zechariah's son, would come, quote, in the spirit and power of Elijah. I think that second interpretation is probably right, though both are possible. But after John denied that he was Elijah, the delegation from Jerusalem asked him another question. They said, are you the prophet? Now that question, again, needs some explanation. It it actually reflected a Jewish expectation that was based upon the words of Moses way back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. Let me read that passage for you. There Moses had told the Israelites this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb in the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them that speak to them all that I command him, and whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Now it's interesting that Moses is the first in the long line of prophets that God raised up, and there were some great prophets, but none of them were quite like Moses. So there developed an expectation among the Jews based upon this passage that God would one day raise up a prophet with a capital P, a prophet par excellence who would be as great as Moses, perhaps greater. So when the Jews ask John, are you the prophet? They're asking whether he considered himself to be that figure whose coming was foretold by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. And once again, John answered, No. Now, of course, the rest of the New Testament indicates that saying he was not the prophet was actually the same as saying he was not the Christ. Because it turns out, we see in Acts chapter 3, verses 20 through 24, that the prophet is the Christ, and both were Jesus. So, John the Baptist denied being any of these figures that Israel had expected to arise in the last days, But that still didn't leave the delegation from Jerusalem any closer to getting an answer to the question that they'd been sent to ask. It wasn't enough to know 
who John wasn't. They had been sent to find out who John was, or at least who he considered himself to be. So in verse 22, they put that question to him directly. They say, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John gave this remarkable answer in verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. In other words, John identified himself as the one whom the Lord predicted in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, would go before him, before the Lord, crying out, out in the wilderness, calling Israel to prepare for the Lord's arrival, to save his people out of exile in the last days. It's the same figure we saw in Malachi 3.1, which said, where the Lord said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And of course, this does fit the description of John the Baptist that we have in the Gospels. For instance, Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Listen to what it says. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there, John was, just like the Lord had predicted in Isaiah 43, in the wilderness of Judea, crying out for the people of Israel to repent. Why? In preparation for the Lord's coming. Now, at this point, we're told in verse 24. Verse 24 says this. In your English Standard Version, it says, Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Now, that translation of the verse, I think, may be somewhat confusing because it makes it seem as if it's referring to that original group of priests and Levites mentioned back in verse 19. But... Many commentators think that's probably not the case, that maybe the NIV is actually clearer when it renders the verse this way. It says, now some Pharisees who had been sent. And then it says, they said. In other words, verse 24, we might be introduced to a group of Pharisees who were perhaps part of the original delegation sent by the Sanhedrin, which The Sanhedrin was dominated by priests, so this delegation had a lot of priests in it, but there were also Pharisees in the Sanhedrin, and so perhaps they had sent a group of Pharisees in it as well. And that's who's speaking now. Verse 25 tells us that they piped up at this point and asked John a question of their own. So we read in verse 25. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Now, the ritual of baptism, it wasn't totally unheard of by the Jews at that time. In fact, um, baptism was actually part of the ceremony of converting to Judaism. But the act of one person baptizing another, whatever it was intended to signify, implied authority. Authority to pronounce something about that person's spiritual condition And these Pharisees, it seems, wanted to know who John thought he was, that he had the authority to go around 
baptizing the covenant people of God. If he claimed to be the Messiah or if he claimed to be Elijah or the prophet even, well, then one could understand why he thought, at least, that he had the right to do this. But John denied being any of those figures. So on what basis, they ask, was he baptizing? Well, John's answer comes in verses 26 and 27. Look what he says. John answered them, quote, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. It's interesting, John doesn't really answer their question directly, does he? Because I think he recognizes their question is misguided. They're focused on him. They're focused on whether John was sufficiently great to go around baptizing people. But John knew that his baptizing ministry was not a reflection of his own greatness, but the greatness of the one coming after him. The one for whom he was preparing the way. Now, just how great was this one for whom John was preparing the way? Well, he describes it there in verse 27. And his description is really astounding, when you, especially when you understand the background. So he says, He who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. One commentator, I think, unpacks the background behind this phrase very well. He says, Teachers in ancient Palestine were not paid. But in partial compensation, disciples were in the habit of performing small services for their rabbis instead of paying them. But they had to draw a line somewhere. And menial tasks like stooping down and loosing the sandal of the rabbi came under that heading of things they, they wouldn't do. In fact, there's actually, he says, a rabbinical saying that you can find in the ancient literature. It actually dates to AD 250, but the fact that it's there indicates that it probably has a longer tenure backwards. And it says this, Every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher, except loosing of his sandal thong. So John is saying, that this figure coming after him, whose coming he was preparing for by calling people to repentance, was so great in comparison to him that he was not worthy of performing even the most menial and lowly task on his behalf. He was not worthy of being his slave. But that leads to the burning question, doesn't it? Okay, well, who is this exalted figure for whom John was preparing the way through his baptizing ministry. Well, we've already actually been told in the text, haven't we? Verse 23. John said who he was. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. There you see the one coming after John is none other than the Lord. In the Hebrew, it's Yahweh. Now that's confirmed, in fact, by the prophecies in Malachi too. Malachi 3.1, the Lord said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. Again, it's clear, isn't it? John is the messenger sent to Israel to prepare them for the coming of the Lord, their God. 
But you say, well, how could this be? Because back in verse 26 of our text, John had said, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. I mean, there John says that the lofty figure coming after him was actually standing among them. They didn't know him. I don't know about you. If someone says the Lord's coming, I'm expecting, I'm going to see it. He was standing among them, but they did not know him. How is that possible? If John was preparing the way for Yahweh himself, how could Yahweh be standing among them even without them knowing it? And the answer, of course, had already been given, hadn't it? Back in the opening lines of the prologue of this book. There we read of the Word, who was with God in the beginning, who was God, and then became flesh and dwelt among us. And we were told that he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came into his own, and his own people did not receive him. So Yahweh, the one true creator God, had entered into his own creation as a man, was standing among them, but no one recognized him for who he was. And so the question that the reader has is, who is this God-man spoken of in these verses who sent John the Baptist before him to prepare the way for his entrance into the world, who was standing among them unnoticed? And the answer comes actually in the very next verse. Verse 29, where it says, the next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, Jesus was this Emmanuel, God with us, for whom John the Baptist was a lowly forerunner, so great that John was unworthy to loosen the strap of his sandal. So that's our text, verses 19 through 28. It's all about who John the Baptist was and then through him who Jesus was. Let's just close now by just reflecting on a few ways these truths should shape our lives today. So first, this text is about the identity and mission of John the Baptist, but it teaches us also a fundamental truth about Jesus. John was sent to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And John was sent to prepare the way for Jesus. So how can those two things be true? Because Jesus is the Lord. He is God the Son who fully possesses, in the language of the theologians, the one divine nature, along with God the Father and God the Spirit, but took on a human nature as well, which was created by the Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and was eventually born into the world as the man Jesus. This is why later on in the book, Thomas could say to Jesus, 
my Lord and my God. And Jesus would not rebuke him of blasphemy, but commend him for his faith. I wonder, do you believe this about Jesus? You, you might be visiting with us here this morning, and you've never heard such things about Jesus. Or maybe you heard that Christians believe this, but you thought, surely that can't be in the Bible. I want to affirm to you that this is the clear teaching of Scripture and has been universally affirmed by true Christians from the beginning of the church. To understand and accept Christianity, you must understand and accept this truth about Jesus, that he is fully God and fully man. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you already affirm this truth about Jesus. But have you truly appropriated it to your soul so that your soul is filled with an appropriate reverence and awe and admiration and adoration for Jesus? The truth is that Jesus is Yahweh come in the flesh to dwell among us. And that is worthy of our Regular meditation. Why? Because it is a source of great spiritual nourishment for us when it is absorbed through our minds and sinks into our hearts. In fact, that leads us to the second point I want to make of application. This text, second, about the identity and mission of John the Baptist teaches us to have a proper sense of humility before the greatness of Jesus. One of the greatest deficiencies in the evangelical church today, I think, is a lack of reverence for Jesus. At least an appropriate reverence. To many, he is viewed as a peer, a contemporary. So that though they call him Lord, they relate to him with a sort of casualness and carelessness as they would to an equal. Others will dare to speak of Jesus as Sort of like a romantic partner who is so in love with them that he would do just about anything to have a relationship with them. Others have so domesticated Jesus down that they have no problem incorporating frivolity and silliness or even crude talk and behavior into the activities of his church and in the worship of him. And shot through all of this is a propensity toward man-centeredness. That leads people to think that Jesus somehow revolves around them instead of the other way around. But how far are these ways of thinking about Jesus from that which is reflected in John the Baptist when he says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. In other words, I serve one, Jesus Christ, who is so great, I'm not worthy to perform even the most menial and lowly task on his behalf. There's no flippancy, there's no casualness toward the God-man, Jesus, in the heart of John. He could brook no frivolity, no crudeness in his relationship and in his service of such an exalted master. Nor could he possibly view Jesus as somehow revolving around him. Rather, his significance is 
defined solely in relation to his Lord. Without Jesus, John was nothing. And this is a model for us believers. You know, it doesn't come naturally to us as sinners to think this way. Why? Because we're prone to pride and we're prone to selfishness. But the Spirit of Christ who dwells within us is committed to forming this mindset within us by his power. And so let us yield to the Spirit's leadership here. Indeed, let us hunger and thirst for the kind of humble and reverent and adoring attitude toward Jesus that we see reflected in John the Baptist. And then finally, third, this text about the identity and the mission of John the Baptist, it teaches us how to prepare to meet Jesus. Right? John is described as the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He's described in this text as the figure foretold in Malachi who would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah to prepare the way for the Lord's coming. And how did John do this? How did he prepare the way for the Lord? Well, it's interesting. Luke chapter 3 verse 3 tells us it was, quote, by proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, John was telling people to prepare to meet Jesus, the Lord, by repenting of their sins. And many were coming from all over Judea and confessing their sins and being baptized as a sign that they'd been washed, cleansed from their sins. What did John mean by repentance? Well, he did elaborate upon this for some who questioned him about it. We see it in Luke 3, 10 through 14. There it says, And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? How do we repent? He answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. In other words, put off selfishness. Put on generosity. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Do you see? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins involved a turning, a turning away from sin, acknowledging sin as wrong and turning to God to do what is right before him. But how could John offer to people who repented Forgiveness of sins. He proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, it's because of what he said about Jesus the day after this discussion that he had with the delegation from Jerusalem. Verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus came... After John, who had prepared the way by calling people to repent of their sins, John could tell people that they were forgiven of their sins. He could baptize them as a sign of their forgiveness. Because three years later, Jesus would offer himself up as a sacrificial lamb to God upon the cross 
to atone for the sins of all who would repent and believe in him. Believer, you have repented of your sins and you've come to Jesus for forgiveness. This is your daily hope, a certainty that your sins are fully paid for by the death of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, and you are now at peace with him forever. But those of you who may not have done that, who have not repented, but are still in your sins, you're not ready to meet the Lord. You will perish if he returns in his judgment. You know, the prophet Malachi had foretold, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears, for he is like a refiner's fire. You must hear the message of John the Baptist calling you to prepare to meet the Lord by repenting of your sins that you might be forgiven. John did warn those who wouldn't listen to his message. He said, even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So repent. Believe in Jesus right now, right where you sit, before it's too late. The psalmist put it concerning Jesus, the Messiah who came after John. At the end of Psalm 2, he said, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in, his, in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, in conclusion, who is John the Baptist? Well, that's the question I posed at the beginning, isn't it? And hopefully you should be able to answer it a little bit better now. Because that's what this passage has been all about. And may John's identity and mission, as revealed in our text, be instructive to all of us about Jesus as well as John, the one whom he preceded. And may it teach us something of what it means to serve Jesus as the one who is not only our Savior, kind and loving, but also the one who is so great that we're not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the great privilege of having a copy of this gospel recorded by the eyewitness, John the Apostle. We thank you of the truths that we've read of this morning about John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus, the God-man. We thank you that you have made us followers of Jesus by your grace. Give us hearts of humble reverence before him and also great gratitude that he is the Lamb of God has taken away our sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.